And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin, sponsored by GEHA. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Thursday, February 8th, 2024, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Daisy Thornton, Michelle Sandiford, and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a data and evidence-based approach to program design and performance. Plus, a NASA Challenge Grant program brings up 13 promising ideas. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, new federal hires may soon get quicker access to health insurance. The Office of Personnel Management is going to tweak the process times for new enrollees in the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program. Once it's all finalized, new hires will theoretically have health care coverage their first day on the job. Here with details, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. What's OPM doing and what are they trying to accomplish here, Drew? So the idea here, what OPM noticed was that there can sometimes for new federal hires be a gap in insurance coverage. For example, if they're moving from a private employer into the federal workforce. So the idea of the change here, and it's a proposed rule right now, is to avoid potential gaps in healthcare benefits for new hires when they come in. So the way the system is set up right now is that new federal employees have to sometimes wait a couple of weeks before they can start getting coverage through FEHB, and that can cause some negative consequences. You know, for example, especially if a new federal employee has significant or existing healthcare conditions or needs, a gap of even a few days in insurance coverage can lead to very high costs for medical bills. So OPM is, you know, after they noticed this difference here, and a lot of it has to do with the processing time of the paperwork to get them enrolled, they're looking to change that so that those new hires won't experience an unintended gap. Yeah, you could be on your first day of work and a runaway bus hits you at L'Enfant Plaza and then you don't have self-insurance coverage. How do they envision this working? What's the theory here to enable this to happen? So if I could give an example, let's say that a new federal employee enrolls in the FEHB during their first two weeks on the job. So they got hired, they had their their first day, and they submit their enrollment request. And they haven't gotten hit by a runaway Metro bus. (laughs) No, (laughs) hopefully not. (laughs) But the way that it works right now, if they submit it in the first two weeks, even if they get that enrollment over to OPM, it depends largely on when OPM actually can receive and process that request. Now, if OPM doesn't see the enrollment request until the next two weeks, so the next pay period when all that information turns over, then that means the federal employee, even though they enrolled sooner, won't be able to have the coverage until that next pay period. And that's where you see the gap. So it can be it can range anywhere from just a couple of days up to the two full weeks of a pay period. But that's where OPM is trying to change it. And what they're going to do is essentially retroactively give the federal employee coverage. So even if you know it's not processed or they don't see it in time, the employee will still be able to use the the health insurance and the health care coverage retroactively for anything they any costs that they might accrue during those first two weeks. And what do we know about the private sector? Is there a model there that OPM is trying to follow? They didn't reference anything specifically, but in the proposed rule, OPM did talk a little bit about how a lot of larger private sector employers have a similar practice to this. It's also something that that the FEGLI program, the Federal Employees Group Life Insurance Program, 
they have a similar process here and uh, to have employees get that coverage retroactively so there aren't any gaps. So I think at the end of the day, OPM is trying to, you know, replicate that similar program or similar system to ultimately help with federal recruitment and retention. If you have health insurance and have stronger benefits, that's going to help in the long run to to offer those to potential or prospective federal employees. And so if you would be coming from, say, the private sector where you have health insurance and you're going to join the government, in theory, you would not need COBRA coverage, provided you stopped on Friday one day and started at the new government job the following Monday. It depends on the job, really. You know, from the private sector, sometimes they won't carry that over or there could be a potential gap. But I think OPM on their end within the FEHB is trying to do as much as they can to prevent that gap. And I think that's that's pretty much as far as they can take it. Sure. And this is not the only tinkering that OPM is doing with the FEHB. There's some other things you've been reporting that they're doing to always tweak that program. For the last couple of years, yeah, OPM has made a really good amount of changes. A lot of them have to do with what types of benefits are offered in the FEHB. So for example, they've done a lot to offer more fertility benefits and set new requirements for health carriers to look at ways to offer in vitro fertilization, for example. They also are trying to get carriers to create more treatments and coverages for mental health as well as maternal health. And I I spoke with actually uh, Kevin Moss, editor at Consumers Checkbook, a little bit earlier this week. And, you know, he told me he thinks that this new proposed rule is in line with those same things where they're trying just a little piece at a time to make this a better program, make it a more comprehensive program for federal employees. I guess one question we can't answer now, but worth exploring is how expanded mental health benefits under FEHB plans would affect the employee assistance plans, the EAPs that a lot of organizations, agencies have that kind of exist outside of your regular health coverage. That's a great question. I would imagine that there's a little bit different offerings between the two, but I think you know, that's definitely something to look into more to see the difference between those. So what does OPM have to do now to get the instant coverage idea into practice? It's still going to be quite a while before we see the actual implementation of this. Maybe not a total surprise, but they're going to have to go through the standard regulations process. So they're accepting public comments on this proposal until April 1st. After that, they'll look to finalize the language and go through those comments once the rule is actually finalized, they said that they're going to give agencies 18 months, so a year and a half, to actually implement it because they said it can be pretty complicated to actually make this change. So we might not see it for maybe two years or so at, at the very least, but it's something that OPM is is working on, so, so we'll have to wait and see. And did they say anything about a cost estimate for it? Because the employee would have to pay retroactively for the coverage, the employee portion, but the government would have to pick up the tab at the outset also for the government portion. Probably they haven't gone through those calcs yet, have they? There may be some reference to the cost there. They did say it is going to be a pretty largely impactful proposed rule. I think there's about 250 or so thousand new enrollees in FEHB each year. So that's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that they're going to be trying to give this to. I think there's going to be a little bit more work to determine the exact way that that's going to look. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thank you. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, a NASA grant challenge program brings up 13 new promising ideas. 
This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Thirteen academic and corporate thinkers have received awards from NASA to develop ideas for transforming future missions. It's the latest part of the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program. Here with more, Program Deputy Executive John Nelson. John, good to have you. Thank you for having us. This is fantastic. And Acting Program Executive Mike LaPointe. Mike, good to have you with us. Thank you, Tom. Good morning. And the program itself, I guess you call it NIAC, the basic program, NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Program, that is not new, right? You've been doing this for a number of years. Uh, that's correct, actually. It was reconstituted in 2011 as a NASA program. And so it's, uh, it's been around for a while. John and I have been uh, involved with it for the last couple of years. Kind of came on as the acting PE uh, a couple of years back, and John came on uh, about a year ago last October. All right. And looks like a challenge grant type of program where you give small amounts of money to a lot of people to develop ideas. Is that basically how it works? Uh, it is. It's uh, actually a three-phase program, and I'll let John talk about it in more detail. But basically, phase one is uh, projects that we'll talk about today is our initial, basically, a feasibility study. It's a nine-month, 175K uh, technology development effort, basically a study to tell, uh, tell NASA why your idea is a good idea that we should pursue. And then after that, we have a phase two, uh, which is a two-year, 600K, uh, more of a viability study to put more meat on the bones of the concept. And then phase three, which is very rare, uh, we do basically one of those years, uh, a $2 million, two-year effort to really advance the technology. So, John, any more you'd like to say about that? Yeah, I'll just add that while we do have three phases and, and you know, phase three does involve some actual technology development, you, you have to remember, put this in context, this is all very early stage stuff. So... Unlike a lot of technology development programs, we're not looking at a mission that's five years out or often even 10 years out. We're looking at capabilities that don't currently exist, visionary, truly transformative ideas that may not come to fruition for 20 years or more. In some cases, a lot more than 20 years. So that's why we start with that, that small phase one feasibility concept. We don't expect all of these ideas to work. Uh, we're exploring whether or not the idea has any feasibility at all and is worth further development. And when you launch a round, just for example, like the one you just awarded, do you focus on a particular area, for example, going to Mars or sustaining human life or looking back down at the Earth or just anything that might be useful to NASA? That's, that's exactly right. It's, it's a wide open call. Uh, we're actually open to anyone in the U.S., any organization, academia, uh, other government agencies, individuals that uh, that are registered with SAMT.gov. But it's a wide open call. Any any technology area that's of interest uh, for future missions to NASA that could help us do our job that we're interested in hearing about. And how do you spread the word so that the right people will know about it? So that's a good question. We have a, a very good network of folks out there that have already applied, and uh, and they spread the word a lot for us. Uh, we also do a uh, solicitation every year, which is also posted in FedBizOps. The synopsis uh, comes out in FedBizOps. A lot of press that we get each time we, we do a uh, phase one call or a phase two call, and that helps uh, spread the word for us as well. And Kathy Riley, who I believe is still on board, is our uh, strategic outreach and communications manager, and she does an outstanding job of spreading the word for us. Yeah, because you don't want to just be in FedBizOps because then you'll get the usual contractors, <laughs> fair to say. <laughs> Absolutely, we we are we are uh, 
we we have a, a really good presence on the NASA website. And I should mention too that we do have a website that lists all of our prior studies, as well as all the key dates and a lot of information about the program. So your listeners are more than welcome to visit the site. Any particular exciting technologies that have come to fruition and were deployed by NASA that you can point to in the past? We have, John. You want to take a first shot, and I'll follow up. Sure, sure. So again. We're focused on really long-term stuff, but that isn't to say that there can't be near-term applications or spinoffs. Uh, we've actually got one that's getting ready to fly, in, uh, hopefully in March, scheduled for March. So the idea was originally a large inflatable reflector balloon that could be used as a telescope. And this was from Chris Walker, uh, University of Arizona and Free Fall Space. Well, he and his students took that idea and shrunk it down to basically a, high, a large aperture uh, antenna for CubeSats. And they're actually testing that in space, uh, again, hopefully in March. Uh, so that's one example, but we, we've had many others as well. Mike? So that, that's the one that's coming up uh, soon. We've had a phase three program project called uh, from TransAstra to look at uh, optical mining of asteroids, where they would go out and actually capture an asteroid and use intensely focused uh, solar energy to mine the volatiles off an asteroid, which of course is very far term. But as a spinoff of that, that uh, asteroid capture process can be used, and they're looking at it now as, uh, through an SBIR to, uh, for orbital debris remediation, to go out and actually capture orbital debris and, and bring it back into the atmosphere. So uh, things like that. Um, and, and one of the things we also point to, uh, as we all know, Ingenuity flew its last flight on Mars uh, just recently. But that actually was inspired by a NIAC program, the original NIAC, uh, or NIAC uh, concept in an original NIAC program. So we, uh, we like to take credit for that as well, where one of our prior PIs uh, did a study on rotorcraft on Mars and on Titan. And uh, the PI for Ingenuity happened to attend the talk that he was giving and realized that, hey, we really could do a rotorcraft on a helicopter on Mars, which led to the Ingenuity project. So, Yeah, that was kind of famous, that little tiny helicopter. I think it just finally yeah. gave up the ghost recently, right? It did, just the other day, yeah, his last <laughs> flight. 72 flights. It was pretty impressive. All right. We're speaking with Mike LaPointe. He is the acting program executive, and John Nelson is deputy, deputy executive for the NASA Innovative Concepts Program. In this latest round, you've given 13 awards. What are some of the highlights? John, you want to lead us off? Sure. i tell you what. Since we were talking about ingenuity, let's talk about uh, Flight on Mars. So we just funded a project called Maggie. This is for basically a fixed-wing, solar-powered plane, vertical takeoff and landing, capable of going, I think it's something like 180 kilometers per flight, that could make it all the way around Mars and give us global access for scientific study. So basically taking the idea of ingenuity and, and just running with it in terms of access to, to the planet. And there, there have been uh, studies on fixed-wing aircraft on Mars in the past. It's extremely difficult because of the, the very thin atmosphere, and most of those concepts were really huge and, and had a lot of challenges. And there will be certainly a lot of challenges with this, but the design they, pro- they proposed has promise, and we hope that it shows feasibility. Yeah, what did the engineers say? If you apply enough thrust and control the angle of attack, you can fly a barn door, but maybe not so much on <laughs> Mars, right? <laughs> not on Mars, yeah. All right, so that's a good one. A couple of others we can hear about? Well, closer to home, uh, we're funding something called a lightweight fiber-based radio frequency antenna. These are used for earth science applications. Uh, In this particular case, it would be used for uh, looking at uh, soil moisture 
And the reason for that is, you know, once your ground gets saturated, additional runoff causes floods and such, as well as on the opposite side of that, you can have a very low soil moisture content with drought. So this is a way to map uh, soil moisture content uh, around the earth. And the idea here is that it's a very long, extensive fiber-based array, which is which is new. Uh, it's very difficult to get long extensions in space from you know a confined payload. But this is a way to actually use a fiber with an embedded antenna to roll out and get a really long baseline that you can do extremely accurate measurements uh, for soil moisture, as well as things like sea salinity and other as- aspects of it. So earth science application there. Going the other extreme, uh, we have uh, funded a concept to fly out to Alpha Centauri or Proxima Centauri uh, with a swarm of very small PICO satellites, gram-based satellites. You know, this has been looked at through Project uh, Starshot, where you use like gigawatt-class lasers to fly these very, very, very small payloads out to to the nearest star. The challenge there is you don't get much communication back, right? You're at a very far distance, and these things are very power-limited. But if you fly a swarm, you can actually do a coherent signal back. And so the idea here is you fly a bunch of them, uh, you get out there, you assemble on the way a nice coherent swarm of these little tiny satellites. And when they get there, they do their sensing, and then they actually put an optical uh, signal back to Earth that you can pick up with an Earth-based telescope. Well, that one, just to delve in a little bit, Proxima Centauri is, uh, that's the nearest cloud, nearest star or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, how long would that take? So light takes about 4.2 years to get out there and, and about 4.2 years to get back. So they're going to fly these at about 20% the speed of light. So it'll take about 20 years to get out there, and then it'll take about four years to get their signal back. 20% of the speed of light? That's pretty fast. That's why you, why you need a 100-gigawatt laser. <laughs> yeah, it really it's, it's, it's like, this is not one that's 5 or 10 or even 20 years back. <laughs> yes. This is so, a little further out. Well, at least but, you can reasonably assume to live to see the results as opposed to absolutely. going to somewhere much further away. And then one of the awards went to someone from NASA's Glenn Research Center, Jeff Landis. Uh, something Mm -hmm. that can survive Venus, which is pretty hot. That's a really interesting mission. It's uh, basically a balloon floating in the atmosphere and an airplane that will go down, pick up a sample, a surface sample, not just an atmospheric sample, bring it back up to the balloon, which has a rocket attached, transfer the sample to to the rocket canister, and then fire the rocket back so we can actually get a sample return from Venus. It's a really interesting way to do this. It's complex, but it's, which makes it very nyaki. And it'll be the, the first time we can actually get a sample back from the surface of Venus. And I guess a final question on all of these, how many would you get for a round that you would narrow down to 13? And what are your criteria for thinking, well, this one could possibly work? So every year we get around 300 ideas uh, for, for phase one. It's a two-step process. So those 300 are what we call step A proposals. It's, it's typically just a chart, summary chart, and four pages of description. And based on that, we look at whether or not it's in scope for NIAC, because as I'm sure you've gathered, NIAC is different from a lot of other science technology programs and programs within NASA. We're looking for things that are framed in a mission context, and we're not looking for incremental development. So um, we take those 300 and we get it down to about 100 that we invite for full proposal. Full proposal uh, for step A is about eight pages. So it's still a pretty short proposal. We, we try to make it as easy as possible to propose to the program. We're all about uh, open eligibility. And those 100 proposals for step B go through scientific technical review panels with subject matter experts that we bring in from around the country. And then we take those results, integrate them, and 
consider programmatic balance and other considerations and bring it forward to our selection official. Do you have uh, a, uh, a group of the regular nuts that supply things that never have a chance of getting it, but they just know about it and try anyway? So we have lots of people that propose each time, and many of those, after many tries, actually get funded. We, we're also thrilled to see, um, at least the last couple of years, that about half of those proposers, of those 300 proposals, are coming in from new proposers to NIAC. So we are continuing to grab you know, more people in the community and expanding the community, which we're very happy with. And one final question I had is just something that's personally intriguing, and that is the sustainment of human life for the eventual Mars mission, which is months and months, I guess, one way because you can't go even 20% of the speed of light to get to Mars, <laughs> you know, some fraction thereof. So people have to live and thrive you know, for that period of time. What is it? I think a year and a half or something. I forget the exact time. But it's definitely not a few hours like it is to get to the moon a couple of days. Do you get ideas on that issue? We do, actually. Part of the, the way to solve that issue is to go fast. So you know, the NASA is looking at nuclear thermal propulsion now. And uh, one of the concepts we had was an, an augmented nuclear thermal rocket, which could actually uh, increase your uh, exhaust velocity, your specific impulse, to get you there uh, in about half the time that it would take now, uh, which is still a long time, but not quite as bad as, you know, a year and a half. And we're also just currently funded a study called, well, it's, it's basically a torpor study using small animals. And the idea here is to evaluate how torpor going into hibernation affects metabolism, uh, radiation resistance, things like that. And their goal is to uh, basically develop a facility that could eventually fly on something like the space station. We do long duration, expo uh, long duration testing of small animals to evaluate uh, how torpor affects uh, metabolism, you know, radiation resistance, things like that on a long duration mission that could then be applied to, uh, to human missions. So it wouldn't be like Sigourney Weaver waking up <laughs> and there's a monster on board or something like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was yeah, in NIAC, we often like to say that we're science fiction to science fact. So uh, we're taking those early steps in cases like that towards eventual, hopefully, capabilities like you see in the movies. All right. Well, there's a lot of people that walk around in torpor right here on Earth, so maybe it could benefit NASA <laughs> at some point in space. John Nelson is deputy executive, and Mike Lapointe is acting program executive for the NASA Innovative Concepts Program. Thank you both for being with us. Thank you, Tom. We appreciate the time, sir. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been great. And we'll post this interview along with links to more information about the awardees at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Take the Federal Drive with you. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, here's one thing about the Biden administration that's pretty stable. But first, a data and evidence-based approach to program design and performance. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. In developing policies and programs, federal officials need to integrate their constitutional and statutory underpinnings, and they need research and evidence on how the eventual program will perform, and what work might have already occurred at another agency. For how agencies can best do all of this, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Beth Martin, a digital services expert with the Office of Personnel Management, and with Basil White, a senior informaticist with the USDA's 
Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. Basil White talks first about a network approach to programs and performance. The Integrated Value Network, or IVN, it's a schematic of programs, plans, metrics, regulations, and laws based on how they inherit authority from the U.S. Constitution and move each other forward. So for the IT folks, they might know this as a data schema of federal policy with the Constitution as its root node. So flowing down the legislative branch to laws and regulations and policy on that branch, and then down the executive branch to executive orders and policy that supports those orders. So IVN's a new approach to data architecture and policy analysis, because we use a neural network to understand and communicate how those laws, regs, policy strategies, metrics, they all deliver business value to each other. And that visual representation Looks like a bunch of nodes for each governance document, the arrows that show that movement of business value across them. So the intent of this is to increase situational awareness about the structure and interdependency of policy, improve command and control, discover unknown stakeholders through connections we didn't know, and improve visibility into that supply and demand and interdependency across requirements to deliver results to the citizen. So we're taking this approach to policy research now because uh, two affordances. One is the Evidence-Based Policymaking Act, which requires us to develop evidence-based research so that future policies you know, emerge from standards of evidence-based practice, and also the uh, availability of neural network technology and relational databases, you know, the price and availability of that is, is shifted significantly. Well, you know, it probably should be, but the Constitution isn't really referenced as much in our interviews as you would think, especially here at Federal News Network. Beth, what can you tell me about your role in this? Well, I have been collaborating with Basil on this effort before he came to USDA for a number of years. Basil is one of my oldest friends, and I did a detail at, or I'm sorry, a rotation at the performance.gov at the Performance Improvement Center. I became aware of things like performance measures and metrics. And Basil had initiated this at his former agency. And we caught up over a cup of coffee and we knocked on a lot of doors. So in the early stages, I was the cheerleader. And as our efforts knocking on different agency doors, you know, we did proof of concept, we did one-offs. We learned a lot along the way. And now that we have been collaborating with Jason Traquer at uh, USDA Animal Plant Health Inspection Service, my role has more solidified in terms of the overall product, which is the relational database, but looking at it using my lens in user experience, digital experience, customer experience, because yes, we are creating this platform, but no one ever says, wow, you have a really awesome database. What they're interested in is what it can do for them whether they're a senior leader who needs to make a decision and the information across these different priority areas that we have can help answer those questions. Or if someone is doing some analysis because there's a, a decision that needs to be made at a lower level in terms of, do we have all of the right people in the room? What are we missing? What What is the universe of what we need to know? We're speaking with Basil White. He's with the USDA Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. And that you just heard from Beth Martin. She's a digital services expert with the Office of Personnel Management. 
Basil, you talked a little bit about what this initiative looks to accomplish. What were some of the issues that it was trying to resolve? Were, were you running into roadblocks when it came to you know innovative concepts and all the good stuff that you just mentioned? Well, originally it was is it's kind of hard to communicate the intent and what it is and how it works. I mean, it's a very different way of understanding, communicating, recording the interactions of policies. So people wondered, well, this this data is great, but what do we do with it? And so it took a while to you know create some products that we could show people and then demonstrate that you know they were understanding, communicating, changing, leveraging policy based on a stronger foundation of evidence. So, you know, we, we made some changes. We've informed the creation of new training policies. We've supported updates to strategic plans. My prior agency, we used it for legislative ingest. So when the PACT Act or uh, the omnibus bill comes out, we're trying to figure out which leader needs to be pinned the rows to deliver this. We saved two weeks of work by walking it back to other things that aligned to those changes in the law that they already did. So we gave them an evidence-based method of parsing out responsibilities for new legislation. At that point, it went from people saying, this is neat, what do we do with it, to map all my stuff. Beth, you said your main role was a cheerleader. What was kind of some of the feedback that you got from some of the other senior leaders and you know data analysts that could potentially use this or utilize it? Well, I, I learned how to, to work the system, and those lessons learned we eventually incorporated into a, a really thorough standard operating procedure. So one of the first things that I was doing was like, I need to learn what, what's in Basil's head, because he was the only one who had created this, along with some of his colleagues at his former agency. But I had to learn this process, and by doing that, it was giving me a picture of what's involved. So it's like, we need to do a brain dump. And once we did that, we were able to start to show people how it's done for those who are interested and how to do the analyses from that effort. And you know, to speak to your question with the, the senior leaders, what they were able to get out of it, for example, when we did these proof of concept, we were making decisions around communications campaign, for example. And could we kill two birds with three or four stones? Could we get more bang for our buck if we combine efforts rather than just do one-offs? We could do a larger comprehensive communications campaign. We could show how, you know, budget requests can be aligned because, you know, two offices might be doing the same work. And so what are they responsible for? How do they stay in their own lane? And how can they justify asking for additional money because they have been asked to take on more work and they don't have the the additional budget. Things like that really show that once you wrap your arms around all of the obligations and requirements, you have a better understanding and can really speak to those things that are important for you. Because one of the things we don't talk about is the work that you do, other people are dependent upon and the work that other people do, you depend on them. So there is a relationship and you can better see that if we have a solid computer network, then we have uptime for the call centers, for example. And then we can provide good services to the citizens. So there, there is an interrelationship, and that can really be shown in a visualization as well as in the analysis. So, Basil, take me, you know, a couple of years from now, maybe if you, <laughs> it sound, Beth was trying to get inside your head and it sounds like there's a lot of ideas spinning around on where do you see this all going? 
So there's a few things that I would like to do that I think it can, it's capable of doing now, and then a few things I think it will be capable of doing, being able to do in the future. So one of the things it is, is say you are a government leader, okay? In the scheme of policy, you exist in your department as a nerve cluster of policy that you own and you direct people, money, and things, and a set of policies to which you deliver value. And another set of policies from which you receive value. So it is a way to dynamically depict the role of a leader within their organization. Another thing that we do talk about is uh, we've had a few examples of this, but not much, is how we can use this to support resource requests. So the anecdote that I heard from one of the leaders I worked for is she went up to her leader and the leaders asked everybody to provide their resource requests. She did for a brand new office and said, these are my resource requests. This is my plan and my concept of operations. And here is how that plan aligns with the priorities of your office, the secretary, the president of the United States, the PACT Act, the, you know, and so on. And then and her boss looked around the room and asked her peers, where's your poly- where's your strategic alignment? How does your stuff deliver on what me and my boss wants? And, you know, then everyone else kind of gave the polar bear salute because they did not have that body of knowledge that, one, explained what they wanted to do and helped create the thing that she wanted to do. Another thing I'd like to take in the future is helping with grants. You know, we put out grants and... You know, people apply for the grants and they hope the grant fits in what what we want. But behind that grant is an architecture of goals and requirements and priorities and metrics and that sort of thing. But we don't bake that into the grant process, just like we don't bake it, bake it into the policy process. But if we did that, we could help uh, charitable organizations or these applicants reverse engineer the scope of their proposal to deliver that value to plans and goals and objectives deliberately. So there is a mindfulness that's available to strategic communication and policymaking due to applying this knowledge base. We're also looking at AI. Basically, the steps to doing the research and development of AIVN is you find a bunch of policies. You have someone break them down into their deliverables. You take a pair of two policies and you figure out how the deliverables move each other forward. Then you aggregate all of that into a list of recommendations. So based on how these things align, we think you should do this for STRATCOM, this for implementation, and this for policymaking. AI can assist in, I think, in all of those steps. AI could go and figure out, well, what source documents are missing? What's not in the library? What are the alignments that we find? How do we break down a piece of policy into the deliverables? So AI can, I think, holds a lot of promise for all of those things. It might even get to a place where we have an AI searching all the governance documents and making these connections themselves. And someone who's in my role would basically just be validating the alignments that it found. Beth, does this have the chance of making your job easier as well? And also, if you could tell me, you know, how how do if a manager is hearing this or a government leader is hearing this and, you know, have has never heard of this before, how can they find out more information of utilizing this new tool? Well, it's not just a tool, but it's an initiative. And I, I do want to give a shout out to the people at USDA 
who believed in this work. Through knocking on a lot of doors, we met some wonderful people like Paul Quimby and Latanya Anderson at the Department of Interior. We were introduced to a wonderful group of thought leaders, and they introduced us to Jason Traquair. And over time, the chief data officer at APHIS took this on and set this up as a flagship effort to help APHIS and ultimately USDA. We have over 100 volunteers, including interns, beginning tomorrow, the 1st of February, we'll have a, a new opportunity for an intern cohort. And in a couple of months, we'll have uh, an opportunity for detailees, both of which are available through OPM's open opportunities. But for folks who are interested, who are in the federal government or who are undergrad or graduate students, we would welcome them for their participation. Jason Require has a community of practice for program and project management, which has many thousands of people who are involved. And to be able to export that into the Growing Good in Government initiative, which is now something that ATARC as a public private and along with academia. So we have monthly working group meetings. Our next one is at the end of February on February 27th. So we would love for people to join us. We have a LinkedIn group. So there are lots of opportunities for people to learn more. And in fact, we'll be giving a, another presentation in April at the University of Maryland's Project Management Symposium. So there are lots of opportunities to learn more and uh, to get involved. We would love to be able to export this and see and help people learn more how it would be relevant in their innovation ecosystem. Well, a lot on the horizon. Yes, please do send me that information. We would definitely love to post that along with this interview. Basil, I'll give you the last word. Thank you. So the IVN is just one part of this larger Growing Good and Governing Initiative. It's led by my colleague, Jason Traquair. We're plugging that into this this overall Growing Good and Government Initiative to integrate it with maturing and evolving policy and program management, not just uh, for the USDA, but to try to improve best practices, you know, improve the training, the, the body of knowledge that we use as federal program managers and policymakers, uh, you know, projects, leads, that sort of thing. So it is, this is part of a much larger initiative and scheme for improving how we develop policies, plans, programs, budgets, all this stuff for greater ability and greater good. Basil White, a senior informaticist with the Agriculture Department's Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. You also heard Beth Martin, a digital services expert with the Office of Personnel Management, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, here's one thing about the Biden administration that's pretty stable. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. White House staff turnover during the Biden administration has been low relative to other recent presidents, Turnover reached 35 percent in 2022 and dropped to 23 percent last year. Here with some perspective, the observer who came up with the numbers. She's a senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings, Katie Tenpas. Katie, good to have you back. Oh, it's great to be back. Thank you. And just begin a couple of definitions. One, when you talk about White House staff turnover, which staff are you counting in this? Who's included? 
Yeah, no, that's a terrific question. It's very difficult to get a comprehensive list of White House staff. So what I've done is adopted the National Journal's definition. They created an edition at the start of each new administration called Decision Makers. And for the first six months of an administration, they assigned several reporters to go around Washington, D.C. to try to figure out who the most influential staff members would be. They published this from Ronald Reagan through Obama, and then they stopped with Donald Trump. A reporter called me and asked me if I was continuing to study White House staff turnover. And I said, oh, I can't do it anymore because the National Journal is no longer publishing decision makers. And she said, well, I think there's a way. Why don't we pair up? And so the two of us, Madison Alder and I, paired up. And we basically tried to replicate what the National Journal had done in those prior editions. So I studied something called the A-Team. And in the case of Biden, the A-Team is 66 individuals that I have carefully identified as being the most influential staff members. So I'm only looking at sort of the very top tier, including assistance to the presidents, the, you know, the director of the National Economic Council, the very senior positions in the executive office of the president. And the way I define turnover is any movement within a position. So let's say somebody moves from deputy chief of staff to chief of staff. Well, they're still in the White House, but it does create a vacancy. I count that as turnover because it does mean that the White House will then have to fill that position of deputy chief of staff. So even though there is staff continuity and a promotion, it still creates a disruption. And that's what I'm really trying to identify. So I start with a sample in the case of Biden of 66, and I monitor those departures or those movements and then I look year to year how many people have departed. And I now have data going all the way back to Reagan. So I can kind of show you objectively where presidents stand in terms of White House staff stability. Is the press secretary among those? Yes. Jen Psaki was in the sample. She's no longer in the sample. Right. Once you fall out, you fall out. No, but what I mean is this yeah. could point to the reason for following these kinds of things because she was pretty good at parrying with the press. The young lady that came after seems to struggle, you know, a bit with dealing with these things. And so turnover yeah. can affect performance, fair to say? It can affect performance for a lot of reasons. I think at the beginning of each new administration, you really are getting the first string. You are getting the people that the incoming president knows the best, who have probably worked with them the longest, who they deem to be the most talented and best suited for specific positions. And as an administration ages then you're moving to the second string and then you're moving to the third string. So you're right that the talent pool changes over time. And I think that there are just some jobs like press secretary where the burnout level is extraordinarily high. I mean, the pressure on those individuals is ridiculous. And so you are going to have turnover. So you do need to be prepared to have deputies and not everybody is going to be successful as their predecessor. I would say the other thing that's bad about turnover is that when someone departs, the successor has to learn in real time. You know, when you work in the White House, you have four years and the clock is ticking constantly. So any time that you set aside to sort of study up and try to figure out a job, it's real time. You, you know, you're wasting those days or those months that are ticking away and that will no longer exist unless you get reelected. Did you track it during the Trump administration? I think you were on during that. But that was kind of like, you know, Dorothy saying, my people certainly come and go around here. So I have to say that the Trump administration was what put my research on the map. I had been studying White House staff turnover since the late 90s. I originally got onto this whole topic because my dissertation for my PhD was how do presidents simultaneously run the government and run for re-election? And I realized that in examining the different re-election campaigns, there seemed to be a lot of staff turnover in year three where senior staff members would go work for the re-election campaign. And then that just sort of got me down the rabbit hole. I thought, you know, 
this is really interesting. These jobs are some of the most influential jobs in our government. And for many people, this is the job of a lifetime to get to work for a president, to get to work for the White House. And I was noticing, I was like, why is it that people are leaving after 18 months or 24 months? I mean, you'd think if you had this opportunity, you would stay until it ended. So that's kind of what got me going. I just became very curious. And then I did a lot of research looking at the private sector and how they spend millions of dollars on retention efforts. How do we retain the best and the brightest? So I thought this is really anomalous. We have, you know, the most influential positions in our government because president's portfolio is so large that they have to rely on these people. And these people are unelected and they have all of this influence. Why would you give up a job like that? So that kind of led me down the rabbit hole. And then I've been working with the Miller Center at UVA and they do a lot of oral histories. So I've been able to ask questions of a lot of former White House staffers to try to learn more about it. We're speaking with Katie Tenpus. She is non-resident senior fellow in governance studies at Brookings. Let's get to the Biden administration. You found that there's plenty of turnover, but it's only middling in terms of how it ranks compared with the other seven presidents you've looked at. Right. If you look at the the White House staff turnover amidst the 18, President Biden comes in fourth. He ranks behind George H.W. Bush, who came in at 57 percent turnover after three years. And President Clinton and President George W. Bush both had 58 percent turnover after three years. And President Biden has 65 percent turnover after three years in office. So he's fourth. Obviously, we had an outlier that made White House staffing interesting. Um, That was President Trump and his turnover after three years was almost 20 points higher at 83 percent. So almost complete turnover of the people around him. Yes, of the most senior people, right. And, you know, I think that, like I said before, stability is important to performance. I am usually reluctant to compare the private sector to the government. But in the case of turnover, all the disruption that occurs in the private sector also occurs in the White House. So anybody can relate to the fact of when their boss leaves or the head of an office leaves, it creates a lot of anxiety. It inhibits your ability to do any sort of long term planning. And so I think that it's important that presidents, you know, when they ask these individuals to work for them in their administration, that they stay as long as they can, provided that their performance is good. You know, presidents should have the capacity to ask people to leave at any moment. Sure. And the fact that people do leave before the end of the four years much less the eight years. I'm not sure anyone can survive eight years. Part of the issue is just the hours, right? I mean, it is not a nine to five Monday through Friday situation if you're on that so-called A-team. Absolutely not. Yes. You're probably working 70, 80 hours regularly, if not more. Lots of travel in some cases. And I argue that what we saw in year three, unlike year two, was the departure of the creme de la creme, like the very senior senior within the A-team. And Part of the reason I contend is that many of these people were actually in year five. They weren't in year three because they had worked on the campaign. So you think about the campaign hours. They had a pretty rocky transition because there was so much uncertainty. And then they started the administration. So many people were on year five instead of year three. And who are some of the notables uh, that have left in year three? Let's put some names here. That's a great question. Chief of Staff Ron Klain, probably the most influential individual who left. Um, But then you also had the domestic policy advisor, Susan Rice. You had the director of the National Economic Council, Brian Deese. You had the legislative director, Louisa Terrell, who was thought to be quite successful in getting Biden legislation, infrastructure bills, other bills passed. You had the communications director, Kate Bedingfield, who had been with Biden through the campaign. And then you had the director of intergovernmental affairs, Julia Rodriguez. You also had two positions that I would actually say were even more influential. And the reason why is because they required Senate confirmation. 
And one of those was National Cyber Director Chris Inglis, and the other was the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, Cecilia Rouse, who is now the president of Brookings, I should add. But those, I think, in many ways are the most consequential because you may have noticed how much trouble and how difficult it is to get the president's appointees through the confirmation process. President Biden is having a lot of success getting the judicial nominees through the nomination process. But when it comes to the individuals that are serving in the executive departments, getting those appointees through, it's been much slower. And it's a peripheral issue. But then if you look at the cabinet appointees, I think that's been almost totally stable so far in the Biden administration. So if you separate the A-team within the executive office of the president and look only at the president's cabinet, and I define the president's cabinet as the 15 positions in the line of presidential succession. Ever since President Eisenhower, presidents have done this thing where they take certain positions like the UN ambassador and they make that what they call cabinet level. And so in an effort to get people to take jobs or in an effort to make them feel better about their position, they elevate a position to the cabinet level, but it's not in the line of presidential succession. It can change from president to president. It can even change within a presidency as it did for Nikki Haley's position during Trump. And so I really think the best way to examine cabinet turnover is to only compare apples to apples, is to only look at the positions in the line of presidential succession. And President Biden has only lost one cabinet member, and it was the labor secretary. And when you study the cabinet, oftentimes a simple way of teaching it is to say there's the inner cabinet, which is state, justice, treasury, and defense. And then we have the outer cabinet that tends to be more constituency related, like veterans affairs or labor or education. So he lost one individual, and the one individual is actually in the outer cabinet as opposed to the inner cabinet. So in in many ways, it's even less of a loss. Right. Um, And Marty Walsh went from one place where people bang into each other, like the White House, (laughs) into another one, which is the National Hockey League. So I guess for him, there's something of a uh, a pattern in there. But to sum it all up, though, it's probably fair to say it really is lonely at the top. Being a cabinet secretary or being a president? Being a president. Yeah, I would. Yeah, possibly. But, you know, in the case of President Biden, I would say it it is different in the sense that he's been in politics for so many years. He has all these close advisors like Steve Reschetti and Mike Donilon. And I just feel like he knows people better. And he was vice president. So he really has a sense. You know, talk about preparation for the job. Like you really know what you're expecting. Unlike, you know, President Obama, who had only been a senator and then became president. I think uh, in the case of President Biden, there might be a whole lot less loneliness um, and just to get back to the, the cabinet turnover, you know, President Biden has only lost one cabinet secretary. And comparatively, at the same time in office, President Trump had lost 10 of his cabinet secretaries after three years. I mean, that is just a striking difference. Yes. And it ultimately, then, whatever policy objectives you have are that much less attainable when there is all this turnover. Exactly. Well, you need steadiness to drive the policy down through the bureaucracy. It just doesn't happen automatically. That's right. That's exactly right. Dr. Katie Tenpas is director of the Katzman Initiative at Brookings. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information about presidential staff turnover at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. The Defense Department's Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office is going on the road. Over the next few months, DOD leaders will meet with combatant commands to further press the importance of the zero-trust approach to cybersecurity. 
The roadshow is just one way the Portfolio Management Office is leading the effort to help the services and defense organizations meet the Pentagon's 2027 deadline for zero trust. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me now with an update. Where are they going? Sounds like around the world, Jason. I almost thought it was like a rock star, right? They're they're going on a road. They're going on the road. But uh, in many ways, they have several trips planned over the next couple months. One is to Colorado Springs to hang out with the Space Command and Northern Command. Then they're going to go to Africa Command in the next couple weeks as well. All of this is about meeting, understanding, talking about zero trust. Uh, Leaders also already went to European Command, again, to talk about zero trust. Randy Resnick, the director of the Zero Trust Portfolio Management Office at DOD, says training, education, and listening are huge factors in the program's success. There can't be enough training for Zero Trust. We are working with Defense Acquisition University, DAU, to come up with training courses, which they have done. I believe we have five courses already that anybody in the Department of Defense with a CAC card can get to and take. One way or the other, Zero Trust is going to be trained. And this is how we're going to get the workforce upskilled. Resnick, speaking at the FCW Zero Trust Summit on Tuesday, says the other way to upskill is through hiring employees right out of college. And many of them are already receiving training on Zero Trust, which he was actually pleased to uh, comment on and see. Tom, one other thing is happening around training. DOD will be hosting their second annual ZTA training event this year with uh, Lincoln Labs from MIT, Carnegie Mellon Institute. Last year, they had over 1,200 people attend that event. They're going to have, uh, they expect it to be just as big this year as another opportunity to promote both the why and the how of Zero Trust. And the program office has a lot of short-term priorities in the meantime, right, Jason? The training is a piece of it, but there's a lot of this planning and strategizing and understanding of what really Zero Trust means for DOD. And that one of those first priorities is to send a report and brief Congress on the DOD's Zero Trust plans and implementation schedule. Resnick says that briefing is due in March, and the briefing will be based on the implementation plans from 39 organizations across DOD. We have to brief Congress on how the Department of Defense is going to do it and whether or not we're going to hit target by the end of 27 and uh, specifically who and which component and uh, organization uh, is doing what. We don't know how long that's going to be, but we're expecting it to be a pretty extensive, detailed briefing. Resnick says his team of and about 35 others across the department are in the middle of a deep dive of that of those implementation plans now. They're looking for trends, trying to understand where the challenges and opportunities lie for each organization. Tom, as a reminder, military services and defense agencies have to hit the zero trust architecture, what they call target architecture, which includes 91 separate actions by 2027. The ZTPFMO is mandated that there's going to be annual updates. So every single October, there's going to be an update to their iPlan, providing more and more granular detail on exactly how they're going to get the target. Next time, we want to see product names, specific courses of action, and scheduling. We want to really dive deep on whether or not uh, or what they need in terms of dollars and resources. Uh, And so that's the kind of flavor that we're looking for. Now, Resnick says a few trends already are emerging, including, as you heard him say, the need for extra funding, extra resources to meet the 2027 deadline. He says, now, that not surprising. There's never enough money and never enough people. But what his team can do is really help the services and the defense organizations make their case, make a better case for moving money and resources through the existing Pentagon process to fulfill their zero trust plans. Now, the program office and its people, as you mentioned at the top, are going to head around the world to the different services and to the defense organizations. What can they actually do besides kind of thump on the drum 
to help these organizations get ready for that 2027 deadline. Right. It's got to be more than just, hey, let's sit down and have meetings and do reviews. Resnick says over the next year, DOD's CIO's office will actually lead an effort to look at specific products. We are uh, focusing on performing pilots. We're going to be performing more than 12 or 15 pilots. That is assuming if the CR gets lifted. But we plan on accelerating our pilot development and finding that evidence that we could provide to the services and the COCOMs so that it lowers their risk for them to procure these devices, hopefully by the fourth quarter or the first quarter next year, which allows us to keep to our schedule. We know about the Thunderdome project over at the Defense Information Systems Agency. That's a piece of this. A lot of the the smaller agencies are starting to look more seriously at DISA. I heard from them just a few weeks ago at at an FCA event, Tom. There's also more coming from DISA around Zero Trust. And then, of course, there's these pilots that Resnick mentioned that they're going to look at, okay, hey, how do we meet this pillar? How do we meet the technology behind that pillar? So I think more to come on that. Resnick also had a very specific message for vendors, right? Tom, every vendor, you know this, I know this, they're very excited about Zero Trust. Maybe not as excited as they once were. AI is the new shiny object, but still, there's a lot of discussion, conferences and like about Zero Trust. He says, listen, Resnick says, DOD is looking for products that integrate seamlessly, and he wants to see companies working together to make that happen. He does not need companies competing against each other and and creating products and, and, and services that don't integrate. And I think that's that's a really a big foot stomp he had at the event uh, the other day. This is definitely an industry problem as much as a challenge, let's say, as much as a Defense Department challenge. His other priorities then? Well, when you look down the, the road, there's plenty on his plate, but, but there's a couple things that are kind of really starting to creep up and starting to become obvious as DOD says, okay, how do we push zero trust deeper into his technology infrastructure. Resnick says there's some concern that DOD may be missing a number of attack vectors in in its zero trust strategy, like weapon systems and operational technology. So the ZTPFMO is now thinking about, thinking about coming up with additional fan charts for very specific technologies, because these very specific technologies don't necessarily overlay perfectly with the 91 activities or the 152. For example, when it comes to defense critical infrastructure or OT or IOT, this is a vector which could be attacked theoretically and uh, bad things could happen. So we're thinking about doing a ZT overlay for defense critical infrastructure. Another one is weapon and weapon systems. Those need to be secured as well. They're different. We need to have perhaps a ZT overlay for that. And the last thing is the environment of a disconnected or marginally connected environment. It's called DDIL. We need a fan chart for that. A fan chart is just as you can see, Tom, if you picture it, it's a chart looking at the alignment between the zero trust pillars, the technology needed to secure them, and each of these specific vectors. There's fan charts for mobile or fan charts for desktops, but they are looking at these specific areas. Now, Resnick says he's not sure when the PMO will begin working on these overlays, but obviously it's a long term. It's on their radar. And it's really important when you talk about you know operational technology, weapon systems, and the like. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.